Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences raising my son, Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son, Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild Podcast. Today, I'm very lucky. I have Jim Matthews from SOAR Behavioral Services joining me to talk a little bit about SOAR, um, your practice here in Spokane, and then just some of the, I have some other questions and concerns that have come up by parents just talking about ABA and challenges with the school that I thought maybe we could demystify some of the um, concerns preconceived ideas, uh, talking about ABA. So thanks for joining me, Jim. Yeah, sure thing. I'm all about demystification. So, well, (laughs) and that's again, a lot of times I was telling you before we hit record, I get a lot of parents that will reach out to me asking questions about ABA and they're not necessarily specific about what provider they're using, but, um, I, I always kind of take note of some of these types of questions. And then the next time I have an ABA provider joining me, it's like, Hey, we should run some of these by some of our local providers just to make sure that we're providing accurate information out there. So everybody stays informed. But before we get to that, I was going to have you, Jim, Can, would you mind just talking a little bit about you personally, your background, and then why you created SOAR? Yeah, totally. So I'm the executive director of SOAR Behavior Services. I started it a little over five years ago in 2016. My personal story leading to SOAR, I think it really starts with uh, when I was in college. I I did four bachelor's degrees because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I I got a bachelor's in economics, cognitive science, philosophy, and computer science. Um, And really the the focus of that was I was working towards getting a PhD in philosophy and really focusing on philosophy of mind or philosophy of cognitive science. So I actually applied to several different schools and I got admitted, um, one of them being Harvard. But right around that time, uh, this was in 2007, my father passed away from prostate cancer and his last words to me were quote live a good life and me being very philosophical at the time i really contemplated what constitutes a good life and what what is living a good life and i came to the conclusion that pursuing a phd in philosophy particularly the very unique version of philosophy that i was doing wasn't necessarily living a good life so i ended up actually not going to harvard Instead, I thought about what I should be doing, and I sort of came to the conclusion that I should be doing something that directly impacts people, right? The people that are around me, people that live now, those are the people that I should be working with and helping. So I did a complete 180, and I went still kind of in the direction of psychology, but I became a school psychologist because I was really interested in the nature of that work, like the very applied ability to help real kids. And I worked as a school psychologist for uh, several years and, you know, I, I, not to, you know, bash school psychology or the education system at all. I think it's a great system and I, I'm proud to have been a part of it. But personally, I felt like I wasn't really maximizing outcomes for kids like I'd hoped to do. Um, so I ended up leaving that career and I moved to Spokane and I started SOAR Behavior Services. When I started SOAR, I was kind of operating on this theory that if I have happy employees, then they're going to do better work, which will lead to better outcomes for kids. 
And so far, that theory has turned out to be true. We have a lot of happy employees uh, and it's resulted in really good outcomes for kids. Our, our families consistently, we send out um, surveys to families on a quarterly basis and we consistently get extremely high ratings from our families, both saying that a common phrase that we'll hear is that they feel like we're an extension of their own family. And they also consistently say that they get great outcomes for their kids with us. So as far as I'm concerned, it's it's something that I'm very happy about. And I'm very proud to be able to say that I am living a good life like my dad had wished for me. And also having the ability to give so many kids and families the chance to live a good life as well. So that's kind of the story of SOAR. Oh my goodness. Okay. So this is one of the reasons why I love doing podcasting is, is that I learned so much about people that I think that I actually like know. And, and I will say, Jim, you and I don't know each other as well as what we would like because of just, you know, you're running sore and that obviously takes a lot of, of time. And then you're a family man. And of course, you know, I'm running the Isaac foundation. So I think it's great that we've gotten connected and we're getting to know each other level. So what a smarty McFarty you are. I mean, Harvard, that's a big deal. I call my, my daughter is our, our smarty McFarty in our house. And so, wow, that's a big deal and very cool how you kind of pivoted and wanted to make a bigger difference in the lives of people. And I think that for Isaac Foundation, you know, one of our real focuses is creating a more inclusive community. And that's really what you're helping to do. So like kudos, I absolutely love that. So it's funny because while you and I haven't been strongly connected just as professionals, I mean, we've kind of been two ships passing in a lot of circles. One of the things that when you started SOAR, first first and foremost, gosh, it feels like SOAR has been around a lot longer than just five years. Like just in my mind, it feels like you are as old as the Isaac Foundation because we're 14 years old. And I just feel like in so many aspects, you've been around like for so much of that, but which just goes to show you that SOAR really does have a prominent presence in our autism community, which I think is amazing. But one of the things that was always present to me, even though you and I didn't know each other well at that time is, is that SOAR definitely puts a lot of focus on creating a good culture within your staff. On a personal level, I I think it's really important to pay people what they're worth. Um, and, And I've said that a lot because, you know, you know, you have to provide, you know, paint. Unfortunately, it's sad that we're in a world where we have to, you know, what you're, you're earning feels, makes you feel like that's like how you identify yourself worth. So I've always known that SOAR very much values employees and you are, well, number one, you are the biggest ABA provider in the Spokane region. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Which means that you have a lot. I mean, how many staff do you have? So many. Yeah, so we're currently in three different states, Washington, Idaho, and we just opened in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, among the three different locations, we have um, somewhere around like 260 employees. Yeah, that is incredible. Um, what, just out of curiosity, what made the move into Las Vegas? I, I hadn't heard that. I'm curious, like what made you guys decide to go to Vegas? Yeah, well, I figured it's a great place to go party. So. Yeah, I love it. I, exactly. I'm super excited um, in yeah. case I decide to, you know, retire and go down to Vegas where like everything stays there. Um, yeah. So what made that decision? Yeah. So really the way that we've expanded is we have people that are BCBAs that end up wanting to or needing to move elsewhere in the country. And um, on some occasions, people will move on and we don't necessarily open a location there. But for the people that have been really outstanding BCBAs and that have shown the ability to be a really effective clinical director, we will open a location wherever they're moving. So that's actually how we ended up moving to Idaho. And that's how we opened in Bellingham. And that's also how we opened in Las Vegas, Nevada. 
Well, that is very cool because again, it's valuing your employees. And when you have talent, you know, you have talent, you keep talent, and you're also then continuing to impact the lives of individuals and families that are touched by autism, which I think is really cool. So again, just goes to show you one of the things that we were talking about too, is you really spend a lot of time building a strong culture amongst your, your team. And, um, and are you able to talk about kind of one of your community idea principles that you, do you mind talking about that? Cause I just think it's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, like I had said, we care deeply about employee happiness, both for the fact that, you know, we care about our employees, but also because that results, I think, in better outcomes for kids and families. There's a, a book that I read previously by Simon Sinek, Sinek, I don't know how you say his last name. Um, and it, he, he talks about this principle that, you know, a, a child growing up is a part of a family and their parents take care of them and love them. And then that, you know, kid reaches adulthood and they go out on their own. And in a lot of ways, the workplace becomes like their new family. Um, and I feel very strongly that we sort of have that obligation to sort of continue the care for that child who's now an adult uh, that their family gave them and, and take care of our employees. So we do a lot of different things to support employees. Uh, we pay a really competitive wage. <laughs> Honestly, we, we pay as much as we possibly can without yeah. going bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. reinvesting in your talent and you're, so you're yeah. taking your profits and you're investing that in the form of people because without people, what do you have? Like, especially yeah. in the ABA platform, what do you have if you don't have people? You don't have yeah, exactly. people. That's exactly so right. true. Yeah, so we're not selling t-shirts or something. We're selling people's time, right? And those people should be happy with what they're doing because what they're doing is making a huge difference for kids who need them. So. Yes, so true. Yeah, no, I, I love that about, yeah, everything. And I have to be honest, when we when I look back at my professional career, I actually have worked in very few places, exactly what you were saying. I, I entered the workforce at 16 and I worked for a law office. That's how I got into the, the legal world early on in my professional career. And those men that were the attorneys in that firm, some have gone on to become superior court, yeah, superior court judges even, but they became almost like fathers to me because my dad died while I was working there. And so they took care of me. And even to this day, I'm going to give a shout out to Edder McMahon, Lamerson, Claire, well, Oreskovich and Van Wert, but the original partners at that firm, which was um, Bill Edder, Mike McMahon, Steve Lamerson, and Ray Clary. Ray Clary is now a Superior Court judge. They became fathers to me and they have been a significant donor since I started the Isaac Foundation. So every year since I started the Isaac Foundation, they have been significant donors in the work that I do because you form relationships with those people. And even though I didn't stay there, I ended up moving to a different law firm, ironically, still very connected to that law firm. And that law firm has also contributed to the Isaac Foundation because you do build relationships. And all of those people had really strong impact in who I am today. And so you're so right. And I think you do become a family, you know, and anyway, so I think that's so great that you recognize that as the leader of the ship, you know, I mean, you were the captain of the ship and for you to see that acknowledge it and invest in your people. I just think that is wonderful. So I know that there is a lot of information circulating out there about frustrations with turnovers for behavior tax. And one of the things that I always try and make sure people understand is, is that this is not, SOAR is the largest ABA provider here in Spokane. So when you have turnover, um, it might seem as though maybe you have more turnover than, than others. But when you're talking about the volume of employees, really overall, your turnover with your behavior tax is quite small. 
correct? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like what, 12%, 11%, something very, very low. Yeah. It's so the industry average in ABA annually is 49% turnover. That means that agencies are losing an average of half of their employees every year. Yeah. We've managed to keep our turnover down to 13%, That's which is, I'm really proud to say that I would like it to be less than that even, but it's, but like you said too, it's, you know, when you have that many employees, 13% is still a larger number than maybe in some other places. So. Yes. Now with that being said, I just have to say, am I correct in saying, because again, our son, um, my stepson, Cooper, my husband's um, son, who's 18, we have gone through a lot of behavior texts. Now that will lead me to my other, my one question that I'll put a post-it note on. But with that being said, am I right in saying that sometimes we don't necessarily want to keep some of these behavior texts because we've had some where I'm just kind of like, oh, you're leaving? Oh, shucks. I hate to say this, but there are some where I was just like, you know what? I think that this is a great idea that you pursue this or that because they'll tell us, you know, they're honest about what they're going to pursue. I don't think this is for me. And I'm internally, I'm like, you're absolutely 100% correct. It's not for you. And so I do feel like being a behavior tech or being in the AB world is not for everyone. When it connects with your soul, magic happens and it's very satisfying and fulfilling. But for those where they're just looking for a job, there are a lot of challenges that come with working with families that have loved ones touched by autism. Sometimes it's actually the biggest obstacles are working with the families and less so working with the individuals on the autism spectrum. Sometimes the challenge is you know, delightful family, but the child is, is, you know, very challenging. So it isn't for everyone. So kind of, do you agree that sometimes when people leave, it's kind of a blessing in disguise long-term? I do agree. And that's not to say that we wish them ill or anything like that. Um, And in fact, in pretty much every case, we support them in whichever direction they're going, whether it's we had somebody leave to become a librarian, which I think was probably a better fit for this individual. Um, And we support them in that. In fact, uh, one of the um, benefits that we offer our employees is uh, discounted tuition and scholarships to pursue higher education. And this individual, we helped to go to school to become a librarian, which I didn't even know was a thing, but you go to school to become a librarian. Yeah. Um, and we supported her in doing that. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely not a job for everyone. And we do our best to sort of pick out who we think has the right disposition for this kind of work. If you go to a, an interview for SOAR, you're not going to hear us ask anything about ABA. Like we're not going to ask about reinforcement or anything like that. Our questions are entirely about your values and what matters to you. And it's all behavioral interview. I don't mean ABA behavioral. I mean, you know, tell me an example of a time that you faced a really challenging situation at work and how did you navigate your way through it? And what we're looking for is patience and the ability to face something difficult and the innate desire to face something difficult and work your way through it for the betterment of the people that you're working with. Oh, completely, Um, completely. And two, I think along that line, I say I have an antenna, you have an antenna and there are certain, you know, like personality traits that when you see them, you're like, oh, this person is going to do really well because you have to be a flexible thinker. You have to think on your feet. And so sometimes when you have people that really need routine structure, like, oh boy, Uh, we're not going to really necessarily have a lot of that necessarily with all of our clients because we really have to be thinking on our feet and coming and thinking outside of the box. And yeah, so it's, you're right. It's not for everyone. And I too, I spend some time 
talking to some of these behavior techs that have come in and out of my house, just talking about some of their natural interests, because you can tell that this isn't something that their soul is enriched by doing. It's really a job and that, you know, that they need to be exploring other opportunities. So I, I think it's great when you have that philosophy, you don't wish them ill. It's just that you really want everyone in the, if only everyone in this world could find really what really, what do you lose your time doing? And then building a career around that. And sometimes it's not in this field. And then other times it's like, wow, such natural talent. I also think another interesting thought is it, I, I wonder, and this is kind of a double-edged piece, but with that being said, I think about siblings. Siblings are so natural because they are immersed from the time from from childhood into the world of autism. And so they, you know, understand just intuitively some of the needs and challenges of their siblings with autism. And so I always think like with my kids, um, if they were to go into a career, you know, an ABA or a, a field of speech therapy, occupational th therapy, child psychology, whatever, I think that they would have some of the natural talents and abilities because they were immersed so much in it. However, I also recognize that a lot of them are going to run to the hills and probably yeah. pick an occupation initially that is so far on the other side. Like my son, uh, my two oldest seniors are basically going to construction technology because they want yeah. nothing to do with <laughs> autism and the thing you know, anything to do with this. Now, I feel like, you know, throughout our careers, we've worn a lot of different hats. You know, we've had to try a lot of different things to decide what really calls to us. So I think at some point, one or two of my children may come back and end up finding themselves working in some capacity, you know, in the world of disabilities. But it's kind of interesting because I think they have natural abilities, but yet so many of them are running and wanting to do stuff that's totally opposite. Yeah, right. So I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but yeah, we do employ a number of people who have siblings with autism or who grew up with siblings with autism. Um, and I think it, without fail, when I talk to them, they all say that that's really what led them to this career because their siblings might've received ABA therapy. And also they feel like they, like you said, have a sort of sort of natural or maybe learned, but a natural talent for working with people with autism. Yeah. Um, and it, they found it reinforcing throughout their life and now they want to make it a career. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it will be interesting to see kind of that population of statistically how many end up going into a field that somehow intersects the disability world. So it will be interesting. So I had said I wanted to put a post-it note on a topic because one of the things is, you know, I had mentioned with our son who's 18, we've had a lot of behavior techs over the years. Yeah. And it seems as though there are some challenges with getting services for kiddos that are older. And one of the things I love about SOAR, and there's other clinics out there that do, um, but not all ABA providers are equipped or able to take the older kids. But SOAR is one of the ones, actually, you guys really like working with older kids. And I would go so far as to say that you do really well. And you are one of the providers that I send families to where, you know, they have an 18 or a child that's 18 or older. And all of a sudden we've hit this big kind of like explosion of like, oh my gosh, like behaviors are out of control and we don't know what to do. And it's like, I think we need to circle back to ABA. So several things have happened is ABA hasn't been accessible to all kiddos that are over 18. So would you mind us talking about this? Because you guys were very pivotal in some of the changes that were made that allowed 
parents like us who have kids that are over 18 to still access ABA. So do you mind talking a little bit? I mean, I feel like you need to toot your horn on this because you guys were instrumental in, in the shift on this. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so up until recently, ABA was only covered in the state of Washington. It was only covered to 21 years old. And basically when you hit 21 and if you still needed ABA, tough luck, you're yeah. not getting that because it's not going to be covered. I don't want to take the credit for it. I want to give the credit to our two clients, but we had, we have currently two clients who through their guardians ended up suing the state and creating a, a landmark landmark state level case. It's, you can look it up. It's JC versus Washington State Healthcare Authority. And basically what they argued is that autism doesn't stop at 21. It's not like it goes away and you still need supports after that. And the judge found that, yeah, that's true, that ABA shouldn't be categorically denied at 21, that if a person still needs it, according to medical necessity criteria, then it should still be covered. And that's a case that we were heavily involved in. Um, Like I said, the two clients were our two clients. And actually, I'm really proud to say, too, that this case, as you might guess, went on for over a year. Um, And we continued providing services to those two adults throughout that year. And we didn't get paid for it or reimbursed for it. Um, But we felt a, a real strong passion to support them in this and keep providing the help that they need. And what's cool about it, too, is both of these people made really significant gains. Um, I mean, one of them, uh, he was, I believe, 23 at the time of the lawsuit, and his primary insurance had been covering it due to other factors, but the secondary insurance, Medicaid, was not covering it, um, which is why he was 23. Um, Prior to that, prior to us starting working with him, he had been completely nonverbal, so he didn't talk at all. He would use an iPad to communicate on occasion, but that was kind of the extent of it. Um, We've now gotten him to the point where he is able to use words. And that happened as an adult, which I think a lot of people might think like, oh, well, and and a lot of insurance companies would like to say, well, you can't achieve that as an adult. Well, we have and he has. Um, And I think just goes to show the importance of continuing to provide that service, even though you've reached this arbitrary age of 21. Oh, Um, my gosh. Yes. Well, and I have been in throughout my podcast, people will hear me say, and I still believe this in my in my the core of my body, that I believe that all that people can continue to make progress throughout the span of a life. Who I am at 18 or 21 is going to be way different who I am now. I mean, I'm 45 years old and I'm not the same person I was at 18 to 21. So why would we then make that correlation when we're talking about our children that are touched by autism? So I've always said that you will never hear me ever say that therapies or improvements are going to stop at a designated age, because I think we're always growing and learning throughout the lifespan. And I would say my son, Caleb, who's 13 is still in speech therapy. And I would go so far as to say that he has made more progress in the last 18 months with his um, expressive and receptive language than he did in all the years when he was young and under the age of seven, when insurance companies tend to want to provide speech therapy, all of his progress has been made in the last 18 months. And he's a teenager. Um, awesome. And what's cool about it is he recognizes it too. He sees that he has actually made a lot of improvements in his just ability to understand what people are asking him to do, break apart instructions, um, be more specific about, you know, communicating his needs and what he thinks. And so I completely agree. So one of the things, as I said, SOAR has always been, and you're not the only one, but I just want to make sure that I'm giving you props because you guys were one of the very first providers that were open to taking some of our older kids because a lot 
lot of times um, when parents were calling around, it was the, we'll put them on a wait list. I'm using my air quotes here for those that are listening. We're going to put them on a wait list. And then like they never got called because those kiddos that are in that category kind of always stayed at the bottom of the wait list. But you guys never did that. You really took um, a look at these kiddos. I say kiddos, but these young adults and um, provided supports for them. Now, with that being said, do you feel like your turnover rate with the older kids, like the behavior techs, when we're talking about staff, Mm -hmm. do you feel like staff turnover rate is higher when you're working with the older kids or is it just across the board pretty, it's, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. So interestingly, our turnover with older kids is lower than with younger kids. And I, I, I don't know why I would, I, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is that a lot of our older kids tend to have well, probably the same kinds of behaviors as our younger kids, but because they're older and bigger, those behaviors are bigger, right? Yes, that's uh, what I was thinking because when Cooper has behaviors, they're big behaviors and it's hard to not get freaked out because yeah, yeah. you know, 250 right. pounds. Right, exactly. But I, I think it's on, on the converse. I think it's also really rewarding for our staff when they start working with somebody who has those kinds of behaviors and they see that kind of progress where those behaviors are gone or they can start communicating instead of having behavior. And I think, you know, for staff, and again, this is just a hypothesis, but I think for those staff, when they see somebody make such a tremendous gain, such tremendous improvement, I think that's really reinforcing and rewarding for the staff themselves. And I, I think that I, my guess is that leads to them liking the work that they do and wanting to stay. Um, I don't know that for a fact, but I know if it was me, I would find that rewarding. <laughs> so I totally I, agree. Kind of, yeah, and that's kind of the thing. We've been through a lot of behavior checks. Be honest with you, I can't tell you whether or not it's because of COVID. And you know what I'm saying? There's just so many factors that turnover is happening. I also think that we are in an unprecedented time where everyone is hiring. So if someone really had this passion and desire to work for a certain company, because that's what they've always wanted to do, now is the time where those opportunities are probably more available. So I don't know that it's necessarily that people don't want to work with older kids. I've just, I've seen some dialogue out there on some of the family, um, you know, private Facebook groups and social media groups kind of saying, you know, I'm just so frustrated. It feels like nobody wants to work with our older kids and we're always getting a new behavior track. I can't say that, you know, statistically, I don't know that that's accurate. Sometimes it feels like it is, but I also think that it's just an opportunity for people right now, get the flexibility of being able to move around because everyone is hiring. So I can't say that it's, yeah, I can sympathize with families that are in that situation. So I, I have, my son is deaf um, and he's three years old. So he's little and there's lots of people that are available to work with him, but I can put myself in to family's shoes and imagine, you know, if Xavier, my son was 13 years old or 14 or 15 and people didn't want to work with him because of his age, but never told me it's because of the age. Yeah. How frustrating is that? It's more than frustrating. It's, I mean, it's devastating as yeah. a parent. So I I feel like we shouldn't do that. Right. And and we don't. So that's why we take older kids. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I've also heard that some clinics are actually providing more like pay incentives for those to continue to work with the older kids or those to kind of make those that may be a little bit more timid about working with the older kids. Because again, they're bigger, bigger behaviors, they're stronger. So I do know that there are things that are out there like within our community that that clinical directors are doing to try and, you know, get more people excited about working with 
you know, sometimes I'm sorry, money is motivating. So there are some of those things that are going on. But um, now if we could just talk about waitlist, because one of the things that I'm hearing a lot about is, is that, you know, early on when you first started sort of five years ago, there was very few ABA centers in Spokane. You were just one of a few. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so um, really the waitlists were very commonly 18 months long. And so since that time, a lot more ABA clinics that are in 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 the field now. Um, actually, it's I would say probably at least um, every month I'm finding out about a new um, <laughs> provider coming to Spokane or planning to come to Spokane because a lot of times those providers will reach out to us because they want us to they want to get on our provider list and make sure that we're letting people know that they are taking they have openings. So it kind of felt like maybe the wait lists were actually getting shorter because I was having families tell us that, you know, it was just three to six months and really it was more getting the referrals and getting the insurance authorizations. And so that was kind of the three to six months was just kind of doing evaluations, getting the referrals, the insurance, you know, approved and all of that. And then they were getting or getting services. But just this weekend, I had a family reach out to me that was saying that they have been told by a couple different providers where they're on a wait list that it's going to be a 12 month plus potential wait list. And so I thought, you know, hey, you know, let's talk about this because as you said, that that's not in some cases that is the case, but it's a bigger, there's a bigger situation. So I thought we could just talk about kind of like how wait lists work. Absolutely. Yeah, I know wait lists are confusing they're confusing for us too. <laughs> the, I'll just, I'll give you the, the nitty gritty details. Let's do, it. Let's do it. Yeah. So it's a little bit tricky because it's, I, I would encourage you to think as though you are, you know, the ABA provider, right? And let's say you have a staff of BCBAs who are able to take on cases. If that BCBA's entire caseload is in the evening, say like after school hours, they're not going to be able to provide adequate supervision to those cases. They're not going to be able to go see families or do parent training or supervise the behavior technicians on the cases adequately if they have a full caseload that's just in the evenings. Um, so what ends up happening is providers will try to spread out scheduling for families, right? So what, what this looks like is maybe they will give a BCBA um, a few kids in the evening, a few kids in the afternoon, and a few kids in the morning. What ends up happening is that it's significantly easier to find kids that are available in the evening, but not available during the daytime because they're in school, right? Correct. It's school yeah. schedules. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what happens is providers will then just in virtue of prioritizing scheduling, they'll take people more quickly that have daytime availability. We do the same thing. Um, if families have daytime availability, we can typically get them in more easily because there's more openings at that time. Evening is a lot more packed because kids are out of school and they have free time at that point. So because of that, that's why you'll see different weights on the wait list. So if a family has, let's say, only availability after school, that wait can tend to be a little bit longer. That's where you're looking at the 12-month plus wait. And if a family has daytime availability, they can typically get in much more easily. This is also why you see little kids getting taken off wait lists quickly because they're not in school. They're maybe in preschool or they're only in school for half the day, so they have that daytime availability. That is the dirty details of wait lists and why, why some and others don't. Exactly. Now, with that being said, I have had families who have reached out just saying, 
saying we need ABA because we are at a critical place where the child is, you know, self-harming, harming others that are in the home, talking about, you know, killing themselves or even like, you know, killing other family members. Those are situations that are terrifying. And of course, as kids grow, they become more physically strong and parents are every single day then more concerned about their physical ability to be able to control their child because they're growing in strength. With that being said, you know, families have expressed then concern about, you know, I'm even afraid to send my child to school because if I have a hard time controlling them, what is this going to look like when we send them outside to school? And in situations like that, you know, I have encourage families. And then when they're on a 12 to 18 month wait list, I have actually said to families, there are sometimes there is a time and a place where we have to start prioritizing what makes the most sense for that child in terms of a therapeutic and like meeting the needs of that child. And that may look like potentially making the decision to shorten the school day meaning that they're only going to the school in the morning, or maybe they're only going to school in the afternoon because you're doing ABA services in the morning, like from, you know, the start of the day until the lunch hour, and then they're going to school in the afternoon or vice versa. So I know that this is, I've actually asked this question of other ABA providers and they're very uncomfortable with Holly's suggestion, but again, I'm not a, I'm not a provider. I, you know, (laughs) I, I just am a parent, you know, a parent that also works in the sector. That's just thinking about, you know, if we're advocating for our children and trying to make the best decisions that make the most sense for them, how much can they really get out of a school environment if they are in this fight, flight, freeze, and combative state of being all the time? And so sometimes it may make more sense prioritizing ABA and then shortening the school day um, in order to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I I completely agree. And I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying to any parents that are listening, whatever decision you make is the right decision. So don't, don't doubt yourself. Don't. And don't take our word for it either. You have to really do some soul searching and if, and you know, your child better than anyone. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, I mean, there are certainly cases where it could be more beneficial to be doing what you're saying. So going to school for half the day and receiving ABA for the other half the day or vice versa. Um, and that's not to diminish the efficacy of schools. I, I've worked in schools. I think they play a, a super important role and there are great people working in schools, but there are also medical conditions, autism, severe forms of it that necessitate medical level intervention. Um, so yeah, I, I think there are certainly cases where it would be wise for a parent to have their kid go to school for maybe half the day and then go to ABA for the other half of the day. There are also plenty of cases where that kiddo should be in school, maybe for social skills or for peer interactions. And it just, it really varies depending on each case and the particular manifestations. But um, yeah, I, I would completely agree. There are certainly cases where it is wise to pull your kid out of school with the understanding that the goal is to get them back into school yeah. and, and living as, you know, quote unquote, normal life. Exactly. Everything is, you know, again, it's a, it's a as needed basis. The critical need right now is this. And once some of these behaviors and we're making some progress and it makes total sense that we're working up to them being in the school. With that being said, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because one of the other hotly debated topics surrounding ABA is, is that some school districts in our region allow ABA providers to go into the schools and provide some of those services during the school day, while other districts 
are not allowing that. And so I just kind of want to talk about because this is something where this infuriates a lot of families. We have families that are selling their homes and moving to these other districts because they want the opportunity when the kids are spending so much time at school and they're not necessarily having hugely successful school days. It does beg the question. Why in the world are we not allowing ABAs to be in the classrooms with them? Especially, it's not like the school district is providing those services. They're paid through, um, you know, private insurance and Medicaid as a secondary generally. But um, so would you mind just, you know, your experience is, you know, is the same. Some districts allow it, some don't. You also were a child psychologist, so you might have even a better insight on some of these things. But kind of what's your thought on that? Yeah, it's your dead on. Uh, there are definitely some districts that welcome it, other districts that are less receptive to it. Um, and I, I think I'm in a unique position to speak to that situation. I've been in the schools. I've been part of decision-making that determines whether or not you know outside providers are allowed into the district. I haven't worked for the specific districts that are local to us. This I worked in Southern California, but I'll say, and understandably so, districts can sometimes be reticent to allow outsiders in for, I, I think, probably fair reasons. They maybe worry that uh, that outside provider is going to be in there, you know, taking notes and reporting back to the parent about what bad things are going on in the yeah. district. Other concerns, which are fair concerns, the district doesn't necessarily have a lot of control over what that outside provider does, right? So things can happen that create conflict. And Schools in particular have teachers unions, right? And school districts are very careful about getting into conflict with teachers unions and having an outside provider in who might be advising or coaching or consulting with a teacher who's part of that union can create conflicts, right? That the district doesn't necessarily want to deal with or work yeah. through. So those I think are some of the reasons why districts might not work with outside providers. That being said, we've had extremely good experience going into schools and showing teachers and showing principals and special education administrators that we can be really supportive in schools. And I think for the same reason that you said, the school isn't paying for it, insurance is paying for it um, because autism is a medical diagnosis and that medical diagnosis doesn't stop when you enter the school. Yeah, so I think close collaboration between ABA and the school district can be a really beneficial thing. So. Yeah, I have to be honest, you were the one that brought up the labor unions first. So I'm going to say that my eyes have really during COVID, my eyes have really been open to some of the a lot of the decisions that are being made and policies and just even how COVID the policies for how they're handling virtual learning is actually largely involving the discussions and contract negotiations between the labor unions and the school districts. So when we talk about, you know, some districts did in-person instruction while others were 100% virtual, I understand parents that this has a lot to do with those negotiations between the teachers, labor unions and the school districts. And you're absolutely right where we're starting to the bigger problem and nobody actually has, you know, likes to say this in public circles, but a lot of it is, is that there is a pushback with the labor union about having outsiders in these classrooms and then the contracts that teachers have. So is it right? Yeah, that's not necessarily. It's not necessarily <laughs> right. And I have to be honest with you, like I have my own access to grind with the labor union on a recent memorandum of understanding that was put into place um, that did impact negatively my children. So believe me, um, I definitely hear that. But um, with that being said, some districts, one in particular, one of the larger districts in our area actually just 
hired some BCBAs as district employees because they were one of the districts that would not allow outside ABA or behavior techs into the classroom. So one of their solutions was hiring their own BCBAs that would basically fill this this need and then be able to work with the teachers and the paraeducators when it comes to their students with IEPs. And you're aware of this, right, Jim? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have talked and we have not, I mean, we're only one on in in this particular district. I'll just say Spokane Public Schools is one of the, is the district that just hired the BCBAs. It is too early because school just started. So we don't know how things are going, but it's going to be an interesting year to see whether or not this actually is a good solid step in the right direction. Or if, and I I have to think that we have to have some grace and there's going to be kind of that learning curve of how this is going to roll out. But overall, what's your impression as a BCBA? What's your thought? I mean, you were also a school psychologist. What's your thought about having employee BCBAs with these districts? Good idea, bad idea. It might be a little learning curve. Yeah, so I do think having BCBAs working in school districts is better than not having them, definitely. I think it's, you know, more appropriate supports for kids can't be a bad thing, right? I will say there's there are some pretty big differences between educational ABA and like private, you know, medical field ABA. They're actually even governed by completely different laws altogether. When I was a school psychologist, I was also a BCBA at the time, and I uh, had a caseload of 51 kids, which in talking to other BCBAs who work in districts, that seems to be a, a pretty common thing, having very large caseloads. And when I spoke earlier about you know, not necessarily feeling like I'm maximizing outcomes for kids. I think a lot of that was due to the size of my caseload. Also, when you consider that you have to go visit kids when they're not doing recess or not in lunch, because you don't want to pull them out of recess and you don't want to pull them out of lunch, yes. um, that really limits the time that you can spend with them. And I, I would end up seeing my kids, every kid, maybe once every couple months, which is pretty much not nothing, right? Yeah. I have to tell you, Jim, when Caleb was having his assessment, this is part of the assessment because every three years, of course, Caleb has a reevaluation with his school district for his IEP. And one of the funny things was the school psychologist sat in his class for 15 minutes, 15 minutes to watch Caleb. And in that 15 minute span, he was 100% on task in that 15 minute span compared to his neurotypical peers, which were like, it was like the numbers were like shocking, which was funny to me because it's like, well, that was 15 minutes out of like an entire, you know what I mean? And who knows what the subject was, was if, was it technology? Like, because if it's technology, he's going to hundred percent be, (laughs) if if you're talking about math, no, I would say 0% of the time would he be on task during math. So there's, it's just so subjective. And it was literally 15 minutes is what the school psychologist spent in the classroom to collect data. Yeah. Right. And so when you're talking about like feeling totally ineffective, I can completely understand why, because it was just almost laughable. Um, I mean, I get it. So as a higher level thinker, I can see, I can say, okay, you know, this is just what it is, but it just was so laughable that it was just like, you know, and again, when I asked the specific question, what subject were you there that he was hundred percent on task? She couldn't answer the question because that wasn't part of what she was data collecting. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other challenge for me was that the vast majority of the kids that I was working with did not have a one-on-one paraeducator assigned to them. So what that meant was I was really consulting with a teacher who had a class of maybe like 12 kids in their class and maybe two sort of roaming paraeducators for that class. So it's not a, a, that's not a bad ratio for a school district, but 
if you're really working with a kid who has very intensive needs, both intensive skill needs and also behavioral needs, and they don't have somebody there with them constantly to address that individual kid's needs, it can be really difficult to achieve progress, especially when I can only see that kid once every couple months. (laughs) So I think that was the big challenge. And again, I I don't mean to diminish the work that they do in schools. And I I think there's tremendous benefit to having BCBAs, um, but it's, it's certainly not a replacement for medical ABA. Completely agree. And that's where I guess what I'm just wanting to make sure parents that are listening, just understand that while this is a big step forward and I was very like supportive and I was excited when I heard this, um, we, we know that there's going to be growing pains. And so we need to have grace and we need to understand exactly what you're saying. It's different than what we're getting in the private sector. So discontinuing home ABA services may not be the best choice just because we have ABA providers or BCBAs in our districts. I think it's probably going to be a couple years before we actually start seeing like kind of a well-functioning system of how our BCBAs in the district is going to be funneling out to all of the kids that have needs for ABA support. Yeah, I completely agree. And when I was working in schools, um, that model had existed for quite a while. um, And I was able to form really good relationships with the outside ABA providers. And we would you know, to the maximum extent possible, coordinate and collaborate on treatment approaches that we might be doing in home, in the community and in school. Um, So my hope is that that same sort of thing develops in our region. Yeah. Well, I think one final question, and then I'll ask you for any final thoughts or if we missed anything. But one of the questions that I had when we go back to the wait list, this is kind of going backtracking a little bit. When we have, when we're talking about wait lists, is it really a first come first serve basis or there are extenuating circumstances? For instance, if you have a child that is threatening harm to others, harming themselves, having a difficulty keeping the child safely in the home, and a family might have to be looking at outside resources in order to keep other siblings safe. Does that in any way affect your wait list in terms of like critical need and maybe well, be it they're only available, you know, for this time, does that change the wait list? Because I know that, you know, there's families that just get on the wait list and then there's families where it's like, holy crap, like does, do the ABA providers know that this is going on at home just so that they're operating with accurate information about the need, the emergent need that that family has? Yeah, that that does. It's honestly, it's it's an extremely difficult decision to make um, because, you know, to every family, their kids' needs are the most important, of course, right? But there are certain cases where a kiddo's behavior or needs might be so extreme that they need ABA therapy now. Typically, we're seeing those kids come from places like the CLIP program, and that's a long-term inpatient psychiatric. Uh, children's long-term inpatient psychiatric program, or it'll be a kiddo that's being maybe discharged from Sacred Heart or something like that. And that's not necessarily the criteria to get in more quickly. Sure. sure. Um, we take each case on a case-by-case basis, but a lot of the time, the kids that have those kinds of severe needs, we're seeing referrals from you know state-level programs or a local hospital, or we have a doctor calling us saying, hey, can you please get this kid in? Um, and then in those cases, we'll do everything we can to get them in as soon as we can. That is really good information. So do you have any more information on the CLIP program? This is the first time I've heard about this because when families reach out to me, I don't even know where to even start. Of course, I'm like, oh my gosh, we need ABA. Well, the wait list is 12 to 18 months. Well, boy, that's a problem. So then of course we'd have that conversation about, should we consider a shortened school day so that perhaps you could get through those wait lists? But um, could you explain a little bit about the CLIP program? Because I've not heard about it. 
Yeah. So Clip is, I, I, I might not be the best person to explain, but my understanding is Clip is, I think most of them are located on the Western side of the state. So it's um, a placement that kids go to, and I, I believe it's a medical placement that's paid for by insurance or by the state. Um, and they live there and they are educated there, although the focus really is um, recovering mental health situations. So you can kind of think of it as, well, it, it is an inpatient psychiatric placement. So it's for the cases that are the most severe. And typically when a kiddo is getting discharged from there, the doctor doesn't want to discharge them from CLIP unless they have some stable place to go to with stable supports in place, which okay. is kind of where we come in. So they'll reach out to us and say, hey, I think they're ready to be discharged, but we can't discharge them unless they're going to be getting ABA. And in those cases, we'll, we'll move them up to the top of the wait list because it's a, a very unique, extreme case. Yeah, most definitely. Okay, well, that's really good to know. Because like I said, when I, I get these calls and, and emails, it's like, oh my gosh, this is an emergent need. And again, you sympathize so much with the families because they're doing everything they can to keep their children in the home. But again, it's creating an unsafe environment for other children and even the parents. Like when I see, oh gosh, over the years, Jim, I've I've seen parents with black eyes, scars all up and down their arms, and it's just, it breaks my heart and they feel so hopeless. So again, the whole point of the podcast is to provide information so that people, you know, become more informed and can make better decisions and parents know their children best. And so you're always going to be the best advocate for them with that. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate you joining me on behalf of SOAR. And I know we were actually talking about even getting together at another time with even maybe some other ABA providers, just doing a parent panel so that parents can ask questions. Cause I think that's always wonderful. So I just appreciate everything that you're doing. I'm glad to have SOAR here in Spokane. Uh, like I said, you see a lot of our kids and our families, you guys are an extension of their families and I just want you know I appreciate it and keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to come back and answer questions that parents have and get you know more nuanced and providing help to families that need it. Yeah, I think that would be fantastic. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism in the Wild podcast. We will catch you next time. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.